If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 3, as we start today in verse 23. God is calling out through Jeremiah for the children of Israel to repent, to stop backsliding, come back to God, and be saved. And verse 23 has a lot to say about salvation. What I want you to know is salvation is not always what you and I think of. When you hear salvation, most of you think salvation from our sins. That's only one use of the word salvation. The word for salvation in biblical Hebrew means not just that, but also any kind of deliverance. Like when David was in mortal danger with Saul and God allowed him to escape, that was salvation. That was a deliverance. He was saved from disaster. By the same token, when God's bringing his judgment upon you and you repent, and then you are saved from his judgment, it means delivered from that wrath that is falling. So it can be from mortal danger of some kind. It can be from God's wrath being poured out. It could be salvation from our sins. It's all the same word. So how do you know what kind of salvation they're talking about when you see the word salvation? By context. So here in verse 23 it says, truly, what's truly mean? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely true. It's not a lie. In vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. The hills and the mountains are talking about those pagan high places. When God brings the nation of Babylon against Judah, will all those pagan high places join together to stop the Babylonian invasion? No, there is no deliverance coming from those pagan high places, from those pagan idols. There's no deliverance from sin either. But the immediate context is when God's judgment begins to fall and Babylon begins to ride and horses coming in, they can cry out to all those pagan idols at all those pagan high places and it's not going to do them a bit of good. So where should they turn to? That's the rest of verse 23. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And that's salvation in all three types of salvation. It's deliverance from the enemies of Israel, it's deliverance from God's judgment, and it's deliverance from their sins. It's all those things. There is only one Savior. And it's not on those pagan high places. And they run from him every time they get a chance. Yeah. So what is the scripture saying? How many idols did they have? As many as the cities of Judah. As many as the cities of Judah, which means they're absolutely everywhere. And what good are those idols doing for the children of Israel? Not a blessed thing. Separate them from God. Where the idol separates you from God. Where is salvation? In the Lord our God. See how the word Lord is spelled? The tetragrammaton. Why when Messiah was born did the angel tell his mother you shall call his name salvation? He is the salvation of the Lord. He is the one to bring us any type of deliverance that we need. 
Hmm. Remind me again what Romans 6.16 says. Let's just flip over there and take a look. The one you obey is the one whom you are the servant of. How's that for a poor English sentence? So let's go look and see how it is in Romans. Paul says it better than I do. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants is the same word? To obey. You are that one's servant whom you obey, whether it's sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So if your faith is in those pagan idols, it's leading you to what? Death. And if your faith is in God, it's leading you to righteousness. Why doesn't it say to life? Because righteousness leads to life. Without righteousness will one see eternal life. Mm, no. So let's chase this Ibex for a minute. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 11. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is what? No, no Savior. Baal is not a Savior. Ishtar is not a Savior. Moloch is not a Savior. Satan is not a Savior. So why do people worship these things? Because of the immorality that comes with it. But what does it lead to in the end? Romans 6.16, the worship of those pagan idols leads to death. Is that talking just about death in this life? Nope. No, it's talking about eternal death. Eternally separated from God. Eternally separated from God. Go to Isaiah 45, verse 21. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21. This is where God is being really tongue-in-cheek. It says, bring all your idols and put them in a big pile. Mm -hmm. And then verse 21 says, tell and bring forth your case. Meaning, okay, make an illegal argument like you're in court. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord... And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So all that big pile of idols, can it prophesy? No. Can it tell you history? No. What does it do? It's, if it's still covered with wood, you can start a fire with it. That's about it. There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Isaiah 49, verse 26. Isaiah 
The Lord says, if you call on me to deliver you, that's different. Verse 26 says, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. And they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. If the Lord, see how it's spelled, that tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav He is the Savior and the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Who is the Lord? That's Yeshua. Only Yeshua could be our Redeemer. God above can deliver us, but the Savior, the Redeemer, the Redeemer is the Goel, that is the near kinsman who shed his blood to pay the price that we owe God. God in heaven is the Spirit. Does he have blood to shed in a tree? No. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. 60. 60. Sounds like 16. It's just hard to. Yeah. 60, 16. It's actually 60, 16, which is going to make it worse. It's 60, verse 1, 6. And you shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Yeah, that's not. That's not. But how many times must the Lord say, I am the Lord, I am your God, I am your Savior, I'm your Redeemer, I'm the Mighty One of Jacob. There is no other. Till people get it. Let's go to Hosea chapter 13. Didn't you have some people that, just like today, that really believed it and, and led their lives according to the truth of the scripture? And there had to be some real believers. There's always been a remnant. Yeah. There's always been a remnant. They've just been heavily persecuted down through the centuries. Just like today. Yep. overwhelmed by the Yep, yeah, that's true. Hosea chapter 13. <laughs> chapter 13, verse 4. Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. He's always been the Lord. But he's been the God of Israel since he led them out of Egypt. When they pledged themselves to him be God and they be his people. You shall know no God but me for there is no savior besides me. All still talking about Jeremiah 3.23 about why are you going to these pagan idols for deliverance. They can't deliver you. Which was written first, Isaiah or Jeremiah? Isaiah was by a hundred years or more. So he's trying to say, remember what God has taught us already. Let's look at the New Testament and see if it changes. How many saviors do we have in the New Testament? Go to Luke chapter 1. Luke 
Oh, you've already read ahead. You know the answer is one. Luke 1, verse 47. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. This is Mary speaking. She's just found out she's going to be the mother of our Messiah, Yeshua. So when she refers to God, my Savior, my deliverer, deliver from what? Deliverance from sin. I think she would be horrified too. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Luke 2, 11. The angels say, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Messiah, the Lord. When it says the Lord there, does, do they mean the Lord like the Tetragrammaton in the Old Testament? The answer is yes, they do. Let's go to Acts chapter 5. That just makes you think of John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. Acts chapter 5. Verse 31. Acts chapter 5. Him, referring to our Messiah Yeshua, whom God raised up from the dead, him God has exalted to his right hand. That's Psalm 110.1, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand to make your enemies your footstool. To be prince and savior. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Those are two of the meanings of the word salvation. Which was he meant to do? The answer is both. Give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit. Whom God has given to whom? Those who obey him. Wait, does that not sound like John 14, 15 and 16? Let's go back to John. Does that mean there's people running around claiming to be filled with the Holy Spirit and they're not? Yes, it does. John 14, verses 15 and 16. Did you say killed or filled? Filled. Of course, if I back up the tape, I may find out otherwise. But John 14, 15 says what? If you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. Who is that another helper? That's the Holy Spirit. Notice it's connected to, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will do this for you. What if you say, I'm not keeping God's commandments. I'm a New Testament guy. 
It means I should go read what the New Testament says in Jeremiah 31 or in Hebrews 8. It says the same thing. What is the New Covenant? The New Testament? The law is written upon our hearts and minds. It's not abolished. I want to IBEX something real quick. Go ahead, IBEX it. I don't mind. Go back to Acts 531. Oh, it doesn't matter if it's on topic or not. It's going to be fun. Well, it's just something that just popped up because of me. Acts 531. Go ahead. It talks about God is exalted to his right hand of these prints. See, you know, I have the feeling they translated it that way to make it look like God the Father and the Son to make it look like that hierarchy. Yeah. But when I started thinking about it, that word prince, I guarantee you this is supposed to be tying people back to Isaiah 9, Sar Shalom. Exactly. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Sar Shalom, which they translate the Prince of Peace, but Sar does not mean prince, but that's the way they keep translating it in our Bible. What does Sar actually mean? A leader, one who's responsible for something, one who brings the, the peace. Right, it's not the son of a king. Because if he's son of, he is the king, how can, he is, how can he be the son of a king if he is the king? Correct. But, you know, like that's pointing back to Isaiah 9, you know, to show right. this is who Messiah is. Right. Almighty God. El Gibor, Almighty God. And Gibor means more than Almighty, it means what? A mighty warrior. The one who in Revelation 19.11 is going to bring Armageddon to an end. Yeah. Father of eternity. So like all these different titles that they're giving him, you know, that, that word prince just does not carry that, carry that meaning. Right. He never sang about a red beret, did he? So a raspberry beret? I forget. <laughs> but I think, it's, you know, I think that wording is just meant to mask who Messiah is, is to kind of set up that Trinity hierarchy of God the Father and God the Son. Are you suggesting that sometimes the translators translate in order to defend a doctrine of theirs? Mm. Mm. The, book, the book of Acts is full of that. We're talking about being converted. Yeah. Philippians. Yes, ma'am. In the Thayer's Greek Lexicon, it says the chief leader... One that takes the lead in anything and thus affords an example, a predecessor in a matter, and the author. Yeah, that's what Sar means. Does not mean the son of a king. In Philemon, no, Philippians, Philippians. We never go to Philemon. But I guess we're not going there today either. What's that? Hardly ever go to Philippians. Yeah, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If it Colossians, you went too far. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. If you go to Philippians 4, verse 20, you went too far. Go back a chapter. <laughs> For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. You've got to see this verse because all through Isaiah, the scripture says, I am the Savior and there is no other. 
And this tells us the Savior is the Lord. That's the same Lord we kept seeing back in the Old Testament, but people don't realize that. The Lord is not an adjective. It's a noun. And people say the Lord Jesus like Lord is an adjective, and it's not. It's the Lord is Yeshua. Yeshua is the Lord. He always was. He always will be. Huh. So if you were to break it down and put it properly, you would say something like, we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord, who is Yeshua, the Messiah. What does Messiah mean? It means the anointed one. Let's go back to Jeremiah. Because I'm going to get preachy if we're not careful. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 24. After telling us in verse 23 that if you were waiting for salvation to come from those pagan idols, it is in vain. In vain means what? Worthless, Worthless empty. The hope is no hope at all. Where is salvation? In the Lord our God. It means the Lord who is our God. The Lord has always been. He became our God at Mount Sinai when we said, we want you to be our God. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord was God until God said, don't eat from the tree and Satan said, eat from the tree. And who did they obey? They obeyed the serpent. That's the point of Romans 6.16. The Lord becomes our God when we agree to follow him. The Lord means the master, the one that we serve, the one we obey. Where did the Lord say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet not do the things I say? Go to the book of Luke. Go to the book of Luke. I used to have the time say chapter 7 because that's at the top of my Bible, so I just scratched it out up there. It's Luke chapter 6. It always was. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do the things which I say. That's the same thing that James is talking about in the book of James when he says, Faith without works is dead. If you say, I'm your Lord, you say you have faith, and you won't do the things I say, your words are empty. Empty. Let's go a few pages forward in Luke. Yeah. Right, he's not even listening. The scripture is very clear on that. Whether you go to Proverbs 28 9 or whether you go to the book of John chapter 9, right? But go to Luke chapter 13, verse 23. 
the apostles were sometimes slow on the uptake. But usually they eventually got it. And in Luke chapter 13, verse 23, they finally get it. Then one said to him, him being Messiah, Lord, are there few who are being saved? Yeah, but it should be are being saved. It's a participle. They do a lot of translation in our Bible to make us think things that are not exactly correct. So what's the point here? It's the same as Mark chapter 7, where the Lord says there's a broad road and many are on it. And there's the narrow road and few there be who find it. Where does the broad road go? To the crispy place, to destruction. Yeah, not the donut shop, but to the lake of fire and the narrow way and few there be who find it. They're the ones that are truly on the path to eternal life. Does that give you food for thought? No don donut jokes here, but it gives you food for thought. It really does. So back to Jeremiah, verse 24. Yes, or maybe not. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's okay. My brain does that too. When you read that in Luke, where it says, Lord, are there few who are being saved, it reminded me of 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4 before you finish so everybody can see it. Verse 17 and 18. 1 Peter 4, verses 17 and 18. And it's, very, it's very sobering. I mean, if, if the disciples who were a little thick-headed, could recognize, hey, it's, it, you know, Lord, are there few who are being saved? You know, that must have been Peter, because Peter wrote about it yeah. in verses 17 and 18 of First Peter. Yeah, let me read that to put it on the record. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So are you suggesting that if one is claiming the name of Messiah and walking in sin, they're deceiving themselves? And if, you know, if that, that verse also makes you, makes us walk circumspectly, because it makes us realize, you know, we got to walk the walk. We can't just say it. we got to walk it we got to see it through to completion. Is that what Paul said in Romans chapter 11? Romans chapter 11, verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. I mean, you got to be careful how you walk. Verse 22 says, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. That's not a veiled threat. There's no veil. It's almost like saying, once you start down the path toward salvation, don't veer off the path. Yeah. 
That may come up in tonight's teaching, believe it or not. It all depends on whether we get past verse 24 or not. So let's get back to verse 24. No, no, it's okay. I love the Ibex trails. Verse 24, for shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Why has there been such failure in Israel? Among the crops, among the flocks, among the herds, even the children not being healthy but being sickly and weak. It's fulfilling of Deuteronomy 28. If you turn away, God said these things would happen. All these curses come upon you. And you know what? They turned away and the curses came. And they're surprised. And they're surprised. And Jeremiah's going, wait a minute, didn't we tell you that? But the people are spitting in God's face. By thanking Baal and Ishtar and these false gods when the crops come in for these bountiful crops. And you know, that, that ties back to what we read earlier in Jeremiah where it says, you know, look at the northern kingdom as your example. Right. And they're not learning from that lesson. Right. Why have they not learned from what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel? Stiff-necked, hardness of heart. Lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge, too. Yeah. Mm. So let's learn. Let's look at Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 to 32. You know, it's not that they didn't have access to that knowledge. They chose not to listen. They made a choice. So do each of us have to make a choice. Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 to 32. I got what Daniel's saying, and uh, I had all the things in my hands that I could have had. I had the Bible. But until the Lord started chipping away and all the things that were not true had been handed down and heard on the radio, seen on television by people who say they are preachers, so you think they know more than you do. When I realized they don't know more than the Holy Spirit, that's when I started turning them off. Then I started finding my way. But there's a lot of people out here who are lost and undone and who have never heard the truth, believe it or not. Yeah. You've got to study the Word of God. Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 32. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess. Why was he cutting off the Canaanites? Because of their idolatry and immorality and you displace them and dwell in their land take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them what happens if Israel comes into the land and continues the pagan practices of the Canaanites God will kick them out too after they are destroyed from before you that you do not inquire after their gods saying how do these nations serve their gods I also will do likewise that word serve comes from the Hebrew word, word avad, which means to work, to do what they tell you to do. The one whom you obey, that's the one whom you serve. That's the one whom you make your God. Verse 30. 
Verse 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. It's not that you just can't worship their gods. You can't worship the Lord our God like they worship their gods. I think that that came home to me more so when I realized that during Jeremiah, as we're doing now, as they were taking their offerings for the blessings that God had given them from their crops, but before they got to God, they had to stop at their idols and give them the first. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it strikes home, doesn't it? Yeah. So verse 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Verse 32 drives it home with a sledgehammer. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. If God wanted us to color Easter eggs, he would have told us to color Easter eggs. So where do Easter eggs come from? Comes from the pagan celebration of Ishtar. If God wanted us to decorate trees on December 25th, he would have told us to do that. But that comes out of pagan worship. He said, don't do those things to me. And people today say, well... Those may have been pagan practices long ago, but, you know, we don't care about that. That's not why we do it now. But do you think God does not remember the pagan practices and how much it hurt? Well, you know, going along with what you said, go back to verse 28. Go back to verse 28. It's what it means to God. Because it says, when you do what is right, good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. If God said do it, and it, then it's pleasing to him. But if he said don't do it, and you're trying to take something and say, well, I, it doesn't matter. You know, if this is what it means to me. You know, it yep. matter. Verse 32 lets us know God told us what he wants us to do. Yep. And that's what he wants us to do. repented over and over and over again knowing that you have fallen into the I have. I have found myself on my face before God because no matter how you want to walk, before you knew God you were as guilty as what they're talking about, sure. talking about right now. Sure, and what are you supposed to do when you find you've been doing wrong? You do exactly what you said. You repent. You don't say, well, God will just have to take it. Mm. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 3 before we get struck by lightning, okay? Yeah, he can say that too when you go face the lake of fire. Yeah. Verse 25. We lie down in our shame, and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. This is a prayer of national repentance by Jeremiah. But unfortunately, the people are not with Jeremiah. The people try and put Jeremiah to death. They don't want to hear, we need to repent. 
So verse 25, Jeremiah lays it out before the Lord our God. We are covered in shame and reproach. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers. How have we sinned for our youth even to this day? And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Does this mean what? What is sin? Sin is breaking the commandments of God. Give me a New Testament verse. 1 John 3, 4. Let's go turn over to 1 John 3, verse 4. 1 John 3, verse 4. The people I feel most pain over are those who believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament teach different things. 1 John, what's that? That's the hardest group to reach. When I started reading the Bible from cover to cover, mm-hmm. I made a point that I was going to do it every year. I did some of the old, some of the new for the entire year. That's when the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and I could see that the same thing that was written over here was over here. Yep. And when these so-called teachers or whatever they are telling us, don't look at the Old Testament, you don't need it, I was such a rebel that I said, well, if they say I shouldn't read it, (laughs) read it, you'll find that it's all truth. Yeah. Oh, shame there isn't a verse that says, and your word is truth. Amen. That's in Psalm 119. But 1 John 3, 4 says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is. If you break God's commandments... But people say, yeah, Wayne, but those commandments, they went away. No. Where? What does Psalm 89.34 say? My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. And Messiah in Matthew 4.4 says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Apostle Paul taught Timothy, every scripture is God-breathed. Theonuptos comes out of God's mouth. And it's good for doctrine or proof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Add to that John 10, which says scripture cannot be broken. How about Matthew 24, 35? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. And pretty soon you start saying, gee, I think he meant it. Now, one word of the New Testament had been written when all of those comments were made. Correct. Matthew 28, teach them what? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. I had the privilege this week, my 14-year-old grandson came with me, and we were talking about the law and the rules of the road, and generally in the law of God, Mm -hmm. I was able to bind the two in together, and I told him, I said, don't ever think that you're going to get away with anything. Mm -hmm. I said, if you break the law, there's consequences. You read what you said. That's exactly what I told him. I said, if you do something wrong, then you might as well be man enough to step up. I said, because I will be behind you, but I will not get you out of it. I said, God has rules. You don't break his rules because I can't get you out of it. Yep. So this is exactly what Jeremiah 4 is about. So let's look at Jeremiah 4, verse 1. Which begins with that big old two-letter word, if. If you will return, O Israel. What does the word return mean? 
Repent. Come back to God. Stop living a life of sin and come back to God. Says the Lord, return to me. How many times has he said return in one sentence? Twice. You think he means it? He means it. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, if you will not put away the abominations, you have not returned. What does Leviticus 11 say? You make yourself if you eat unclean foods. You make yourself abominable. Makes your soul unclean. Makes you an abomination in the eyes of God. If you are an abomination before God, you have not returned. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. The point of verse 1 is this. Don't just talk. Don't just talk. In the context of Jeremiah 4, exile can still be averted. Part of the nation of Judah has gone into Babylonian captivity, but not all of it. And God says, it's not too late. But you have to return. Not in words. Not in empty words. But in actual deeds, in conduct. If you will return to me, says the Lord, return to me. That's not redundant. He says, if you will return to me, you must actually return. Not just talk about it. And if you'll put away your abominations out of my sight. Oh, does that mean just take them home and put them in the closet? No. Where could you put them that God would not see them? Exactly, you've got to destroy them. That's right. Then you shall not be moved. That is, you will not be sent into captivity. Put it in a broader context. If we will repent and turn to God in faith with our whole heart, will we be sent to the lake of fire? No. The answer is no. We have the choice. We still have time. When does time expire for you and I? When we take the last breath. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So if there's somebody out there listening to me who has not yet repented, it's not too late. Oh, I, I know, Mary, but... But what? She says it would be helpful if I would repeat everything you guys are saying. So the people in go to meeting land could hear and understand. But it's, it's as disruptive when I do that as when I don't. So when you make comments, please speak up as loud as you can. So verse 1, you can put the book of James there when it says what? Faith without works is dead. It means it's just empty words. God says, don't return to me with empty words. You can also look at Matthew chapter 15. It's the same concept. Matthew chapter 15 verse 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth. He says they're empty words. They don't mean anything. And honor me with their lips. They claim that I am God. But their heart is far from me. 
and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's the same as Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? If you do that, they're just empty words. They don't mean anything. But go back to Jeremiah 4. What if the nation of Judah would truly, truly repent and return back to God? Not only would it result in the deliverance of their nation, both from Babylon and from God's wrath, but look at verse 2. And you will swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. God says, if you, Judah, will return to me, and the world then can see the blessings that will come, the deliverance, the protection, then they will turn to me. You will be the light to the nations. You will be the light that you don't put under a bushel that causes the other nations to say, we want to worship a God like you have. How can we do that? But what does Israel teach the world? When they get the beautiful crops in, they run to Baal and Ishtar and give them thanks. It doesn't teach the nations anything about God or about repentance, does it? I used to wonder why God didn't just zap on them and let everybody see it. But then I figured, you know, he'd be zapping them all the Just wait till we get on in Jeremiah. He's going to zap everybody. Verse 3, For thus says the Lord, to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. What's that, Julie? Oh, oh, nothing, nothing. Okay. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, why not to the men of the northern kingdom of Israel? It's too late for them. They're gone. Their nation's destroyed. Never again to be regathered until Messiah returns. And that hasn't happened yet. For 2,700 years, they have wandered. Why do we call them the ten lost tribes? We don't know where they are. They could be sitting in this auditorium for all we know. They could be sitting on go to meeting. They don't know who they are. But does God know? How do you know? Because Revelation chapter 7. Don't call them all back. Yeah. There's 12,000 from how many tribes? Including the 10 lost tribes, quote-unquote, huh? Except for Dan. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. What's that mean? Yeah, it's using an agricultural expression to talk about the heart. You don't plant in dry, hard ground. You plow it. You, you disc it. You harrow it. You make it nice and soft so that you can plant it, so the seed can take root and grow. And you don't sow among thorns, because what happens if you do that? It chokes out the grain that you plant. Does this remind you of Messiah's parable in the book of Matthew about the four kinds of hearts? Yes. Yeah. 
So he's saying, just like you would plow the ground and make it soft before you plant it, and you would clear out the thorns to make sure it's good ground, you have to do the same thing to your heart. If you try and worship the true and living God while participating in the pagan idolatry and immorality of this world, what happens to the gospel? It gets choked out. It gets choked out. One thing that brings tears to my eyes is to think of how many people have been part of my congregations over the last 30 years and that have moved away. And when they moved away, said, well, there's no Messianic congregation like that one out here, so we'll just go back to church and start painting Easter eggs and putting up Christmas trees and eating pigs because, well, that's what everybody else does. Yeah, yeah you, get, you make some... Little old granny's really mad if you start talking bad about Easter. Yeah. Easter eggs and stuff like that. Yep, you sure can. Go to Matthew chapter 13. I've been told in my face so many times, I don't care what the Bible says, you're not taking my Christmas trees. Well, we all get to make a choice. Matthew chapter 13. What do you know? This is the parable of the four kinds of heart. We're going to read verses 1 to 23, but I want you to focus when we get to it in verse 22. So chapter 13, verse 1. On the same day, Yeshua went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Do you know what happens when you do that? The voice is amplified and it spreads all over the side of the mountain. It's really cool. If we get a chance when we're at the Mount of Beatitudes, we will try that. Verse 3, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. This is that fallow ground. And the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. When the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Notice, the ground does not always produce the same amount of fruit, but the good ground still produces fruit. Verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you see how that's different from Revelation? In Revelation 2 and 3, it says, if you have ears, then hear. If you have ears to hear, this means if you want to know, then hear. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been, yet been given. I put in the yet, but that's what it means. For whoever has, to him more will be given, he, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, 
and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. It's because they don't want to see, hear, and understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. What's that mean? They don't want to hear anymore. They don't want to see. They don't want to understand. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes, they have closed. Notice the choice. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. They're afraid they might learn that what they're doing is wrong. And they don't want to know that what they're doing is wrong because they're comfortable in what they're doing. Do you ever hear that from friends and family? I think it's they already know it's wrong. They just don't want nothing to back it up that it's wrong. They don't want any proof. That's what they're saying here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lest they should understand with their hearts in turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see Amen. and your ears for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And hear what you hear and did not hear it. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom. What did John the Baptist preach? The gospel of the kingdom. What did Messiah preach? The gospel of the kingdom. So that's what he means when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. Then the wicked one comes and snatches away what he has sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. They heard it. They didn't understand it. Satan takes it away. Lest they should develop a desire to hear it and understand it. Verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. He does not go back to the word of God and study. To give depth and understanding to what he's just learned. But endures it only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises. When they get home and the family starts ridiculing them and mocking them. They say well you know it's not worth it. Because of the word immediately he stumbles. Verse 22, this is the verse I really want you to get. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. He hears it, but he doesn't want to obey it because of what it's going to cost him. Look at what I'm going to have to stop doing. Look at what I'm going to have to start doing. Uh, It's not worth it. I remember those days, don't you? Yeah. Verse 20, but he who received the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The only one saved are those in verse 23. They're the ones who bore fruit. Turn to the book of John chapter 15.
John 15, start in verse 4. Okay, John 15, verse 4. says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, which means what? They're not bearing fruit. It says, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. It's best to be producing fruit for the Lord, isn't it? Back to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Is that a commandment? Yeah, but notice it's not talking about physical circumcision. And take away the foreskins of your hearts. That's where the commandment comes in, is circumcision of the heart. What does it mean to circumcise the flesh? That's a promise that I will be obedient and faithful. Circumcision of the heart is I actually am obedient and fruitful, right? And faithful. So circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest. What does the word lest mean? Here's what happens if you don't. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So circumcision of the heart is another term for repentance. Repentance. Repentance and sanctification are intricately entwined. Circumcision and repentance and sanctification are all different sides of a coin. But Wayne, circumcision of the heart's not an Old Testament concept. Sure it is. Go back to Deuteronomy 10. It's all through the Old Testament. How many times did Messiah say, have you never read in the scripture? Deuteronomy 10, 16. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. The heading of that particular section, my Bible says, love the Lord your God. Mine says the essence of the law. Yours says the essence of the law. And that's what circumcision of the heart exactly. is, is the essence of the law. So when people say the law has been abolished, look at what they're saying. Look at the implications of that. Look at the implications of that. How many of the Old Testament prophets told us God's commandments were forever. Pretty much every one. So if God's commandments are not forever, then every one of those prophets is a false prophet and the Bible falls apart. Including our Messiah. 
including our Messiah. So you just have to consider the implications of your words. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God tells us that if a prophet is a true prophet of God, every word they prophesy will come to pass, right? Did Moses tell us that the Sabbath is a commandment forever? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, all the prophets told us that God's commandments are forever. If, our, if God's commandments were abolished when Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected and are not forever, then that means the prophecies failed of every prophet who wrote the books of our Bible. So what are the implications of that? What if the Bible was written by a bunch of false prophets? Then our faith is in vain. Yeah. On the website, under the Q&As, that tab up at the top, there's one called, What If? And it goes through and lists all these prophecies by all these prophets. It say, the Sabbath is forever. Unclean foods are forever. The feasts and festivals are forever. And if they're not, then those prophets failed. They should have been stoned. They certainly should not be in our Bible. But then that means you've got it throughout the entire Bible. So people don't understand the implications of something like the law doesn't apply anymore. I just mentioned a snarky way. Sorry, didn't mean to be snarky, but okay. You know, that, that circumcision of the heart, isn't that a New Testament concept? Yes, circumcision of the heart, is that not just a New Testament concept? So read this section about circumcision of the heart is the essence of the law. Yeah. You can't separate the two, because if you circumcise your heart to serve the Lord, you're going to keep his commandments. That's what it means, yep. So, I'm not sure I've even read it yet, so let's read it. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Therefore, oh my. Got to start back at verse 12. You can't start with a therefore. Verse 12, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but? Here's what God requires. To fear the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways and to love him. And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Oh, but Ibex. I said, but Ibex. The church will say, but Wayne, we're not part of Israel. Oh, I am. I've been grafted. Yep. They say, we are a New Testament church. But if you read the New Testament, it says it's to Israel. If you're not part of Israel, you're not in the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33 and Hebrews chapter 8. Oh, you were, you were asking that for real. Keep a finger in Deuteronomy. Go to Jeremiah 31, 33. We'll even start in verse 31 to make sure that you don't think I left something out. Uh, 
Uh, if you take text out of context, you can make a pretext. But Yes, you will. You will notice a glaring omission in the word church in the whole thing. No, that's right. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, are you there? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is the new covenant sealed in Messiah's blood, right? When I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my Torah, my law in their minds and write on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. I'll make with the house of who? Israel. The house of Israel. So when they say, I'm not part of Israel, what they're saying is, I'm not part of the new covenant. Keep a finger in Deuteronomy and go up to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Starting in verse 8. So this is in the New Testament in case they say, well, it's obviously changed since Jeremiah's day. No, verse 8. Because finally fought with him, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And then in verse 10, For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. The word church doesn't appear in Jeremiah 31 or in Hebrews 8. Add to that Ephesians chapter 2. Add to that Ephesians chapter 2. Which says, you used to be strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. So let's go to Ephesians 2. Three witnesses, one from the Old Testament, two from the New, that say what? The same thing. You're grafted into Israel. That's Romans chapter 11. That's the wild olive tree being grafted into the cultivated tree. I've heard church people all over the world say, oh, no, no, we're not grafted into Israel, grafted into Messiah. Yep. <laughs> but. Yeah, he, he was different from Israel. He came out of that whole thing in the ground. He didn't really come out of the trunk. The yeah. So Ephesians 2, verse 11 and 12 says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, verse 12, that at that time, that is before you got saved, you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise. Notice those go hand in hand. If you're not part of Israel, you're not part of the covenants God made with Israel. This is true, it can't be separated. Can't be separated. And then we go forward to verse 19, which talks about, but now that you've been saved, now therefore you are no longer strangers, strangers that is from the covenants of promise, and foreigners that is foreigners from the commonwealth of Israel, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 19 says you are now grafted into Israel, and that allows you to participate in the covenants, including the new covenant that God made with Israel. Did you notice that verse 12 and verse 19, there's a synonymous phrase that says, 
In verse 12, the commonwealth of Israel. In verse 12, it says the commonwealth of Israel. In verse 19, it says the household of God. In verse 19, it says the household of God, and they mean the same thing. They are the exact same thing. If you're part of Israel, you're part of the covenant, which means you're in a covenant with God and you're part of the household of God. That is, you're a child of God. Yes, dear. Good and loud, because you're way back there. Remembering that covenant. Remembering that covenant. Is a contract. Is a contract. If you're not part of that house. If you're not part of the house. If you're not a participant in the contract. You have no standing whatsoever. You have no standing to enforce it. That's a lawyer's wife. Yes. <laughs> if, you are, if you are not a party to the contract, can you go into court to enforce the contract? No. As a general, the answer is no. You have no, what was that word? Standing. Standing. So if you say, I'm a New Testament Christian, but I'm not grafted into Israel, then you're not a New Testament Christian either. <clears throat> Remembering that the word Christian is only used three times in the Bible, always, always by outsiders in a negative connotation. The general term they use for themselves was saints, and we know how saints are defined in the Bible. It's those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. I was just going to say, you know, all these arguments are like dominoes when you push one down. They just... All these arguments are like dominoes when you push one down, they just knock the next one down and the next one and the next one. Deuteronomy chapter 10. You knew we would eventually read the verse. We didn't... We started back at verse 12 for running start. We're up to verse 13. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, and also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. Circumcision of the heart was defined in verses 12 and 13 as fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and statutes I command you today for your good. Yes, ma'am. Circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart. Is the same as voluntarily. Is the same as voluntarily. As the word shows you. As the word shows you. Sin in your life. You cut it out. As it shows you the sin in your life, you cut it out. That's what it means. Circumcision of the heart is to remove the sin. The heart, they didn't have Grace anatomy. They didn't know what a heart really looked like. The heart is your desires, what you want to do. To write the law upon your heart or to circumcise your heart is to want to follow God. It should be what you want. Yes, sir. Uh, the heading on, on this section here says obedience and expression of grateful love. Obedience and expression of grateful love. That is well said. Let's go also to Deuteronomy 30. 
Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, is a promise given to Israel that when they do return to the Lord our God, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Verse 8, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you today. That is circumcision of the heart. We have people all over the world claiming I'm a New Testament Christian, I'm circumcised to the heart, and don't tell me about God's commandments because they don't apply. And don't realize the inconsistency of the position. This is actually a prophecy, which means... Has not come to pass yet. It's still unfulfilled at this point. And what does God say? He's saying the exact same thing that he said from the beginning. You're going to do my commandments. I'm going to circumcise your heart and you're going to keep my commandments. But not, you know, well, I abolished them, then I'm going to bring them back. It's, it's the same as it's always been from the beginning. So from the beginning, God has never changed. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Dispensationalism says, well, they had to follow the commandments, but we don't. But in the future, they're going to have to again. Then they won't again. Then they'll have to again. God keeps changing his mind. He can't decide what he wants. That's Is that what our scripture says? No, no it's not. not. Let's go to Second Kings 22. Circumcision in the heart means you actually have repented. You actually have turned back to God with your whole heart. You love him enough to be obedient. 2 Kings chapter 22. Do you remember a time in ancient history like 10 years ago when marriage vows said to honor and obey? You can't have that marriage vows today because that's not politically correct. But for thousands of years, that was marriage vows, right? It's based upon the bride of Messiah honoring and obeying the bridegroom. 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 11 to 17. What happened in Israel, Judah in particular, because the northern kingdom's gone, when they found the book of the law? Found us in, didn't even know it existed. Didn't even know what it was. They called it this book. Starting in verse 11, 2 Kings 22, verse 11. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. That's a sign of great mourning. He's heartbroken because they've not been doing it, right? Verse 12, then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. Who's prophet in Judah at the time that Josiah reigns? 
Jeremiah. For great is the wrath of the Lord that's aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, and Asaiah went to Hulda the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. I don't know why that was necessary, but they included it. <laughs> and they spoke with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. See, they don't even put the thee in here, but you really have to. The Lord is not an adjective. It's a noun. The Lord, the God of Israel. Tell the man who sent you to me. By the way, that's the king. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. Well, she's been talking to the source who wrote the book. What is the word? I've heard it read several times. What does it mean when it says the keeper of the wardrobe? Does that mean she kept the clothes? Yeah. For the priest, right? Yeah. Mended and cared for, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Somebody's got to do it. Right. So why is God's wrath about to destroy Judah? Because they have forsaken me. Deuteronomy 8.11 To forsake God means they stop following his commandments. God bless you, whoever that is. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 66 because it's prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled and let's see if God changes his mind about how he deals with Wicked people. Verse 19 of that second Kings chapter says, talks about circumcision of the heart. Yeah. The heart was tender because it was circumcised. Yeah. So therefore, Josiah the king is not going to suffer the destruction. It's going to be after his days. Because he repents. Isaiah 66, 14. Again, this is about the second coming of the Lord. It has not yet happened. But it shows that God's attitude has not changed. His word does not fail. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. Who will his wrath be poured out on? His enemies, the lawless ones, not his servants, not the obedient ones. So those who say that everybody's got to go through the seven years of the tribulation and experience God's wrath should come back and read about these end times prophecy. Wayne, to jump back just a little bit as we were talking about 
circumcision of the heart. Paul told us to go and present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, yeah. which is but our reasonable service. So as we, if we study the Word of God, and God reveals things to us, we should be willing at any time to take that and ask God to relieve us from it, remove it from us, and get it out of our life. Have to, because without holiness, comma, it is no one will see God. Yeah, it's impossible to please God, and no one will see God without holiness. Since you mention it, let's go up and look at it. Little book of Hebrews. It's interesting. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. When God described the priestly garment, when God described the priestly garment. The word holiness unto the Lord was to be on the whatever. The word holiness to the Lord is on a gold crown on the turban of the high priest. Uh huh. So from the get go, God is saying holiness is what you're looking for. Right. Kodesh Ladonai is what that gold band said. And the high priest could not raise his hands above that level. Even though the. Um, menorah, the lamps were above that level. So he had to stand on a stool in order to tend the lights so as to not raise his hand above that holiness to the Lord. And that's why they also backed out to, to not to turn their back on God. They backed out to not turn their back on God. To show your behind to God was a great insult. So that means they weren't charismatic Correct. Hebrews 11.6 Hebrews 11.6 Without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and, not or that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then a couple pages later in Hebrews 12 verse 14 Pursue peace with all people, comma and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Where is that one? That was Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, was it? I'm sorry, I'm turning to it. I'd already shut my Bible. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. It's the one in the right-hand column of the right-hand page. Okay. Oh, problem. Go back to Jeremiah 4. And I was worried I didn't have enough material prepared. Hmm. Oh, me of little faith. Also in verse 4, there's a play on words. One's chema and the other's hema. So close. It's just a, the little bit of the upstroke that connects one of the letters that looks like a door frame. I, I just wrote that down because I thought that was cool. God does a lot of that in Hebrew that you don't see in English. Okay, Jeremiah 4. God said in verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire. That's Isaiah 66. 
The same thing applies in verse 14 to everybody. It's not just Judah and Jerusalem. It's the same concept, the same judgment that's going to fall, the same wrath that's going to fall on people in the day of the Lord if they will not repent and circumcise their hearts. Oh, Wayne, you're just a Judaizer. How many of you realize the word Judaizer is not in the Bible? It's in Canon 29 of the Council of Laodicea. It's a Catholic term. Verse 5, Jeremiah 4, 5. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say. Notice earlier Jeremiah was told to prophesy to the north. And now he's to turn his attention specifically to Judah and Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together, and say, Assemble yourselves, and let us go into the fortified cities. What do you know that means? War. War. When you read in the Bible about the daughters of Jerusalem, it's not talking about the girls. It's talking about Bethany, Bethphage, and Bethlehem, those unwalled villages that at time of attack, the people would run inside the walls of Jerusalem for protection. How did they know to do that? You sound the trumpet. You sound the trumpet, and it calls the people to come into the walled city. Verse 6 says, Set up the standard toward Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay. For I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. In verse 6, when he uses Zion or Zion, that's prophetic, Jerusalem. So as it happened in the past that God had him blow the trumpet to say Babylon is coming, so he will do it in the future to tell us that Gog and Magog is coming and the other invasions. They always come from the north. Oh, Oh, this is something I've got to tell you. Disasters coming when in verses 5 and 6? Take refuge, do not delay. It's imminent, right? This is 40 years before Babylon comes. 40 years. Not 39, not 41. 40 is a number of testing. So God gives them 40 years from the time Jeremiah gives this warning to repent, circumcise their hearts, return to God, and avert the disaster. Sometimes reading what Israel's done reminds me of my grandchildren with their forgetfulness from here to there that I asked them to pick something up. Mm-hmm. And they no longer got out of my sight, but they've already forgot it. And Israel was the same way. You give them 40 years, you know they're going to forget it. Yeah. But why did God have them wanted for 40 years in the wilderness? He says it to test them to see whether they will be obedient or not. He gives Jerusalem 40 years after Jeremiah gives the warning to blow the trumpet because Babylon is coming. Unless, of course, you repent. And they chose what? Not to repent. Yes, Daniel. Uh, in verse six, where it says set up the standard. In verse six, when it says set up the standard. The word standard is nace. The word standard is nace. N-E-S, if you want to spell it that way. N-E-S, nace. That reminded me of Isaiah 11, 10, where it 
says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse who stands as a banner, a nace. That same word is used to identify Messiah as the banner, the nace. So if this is an end time prophecy in Jeremiah, set up the standard of the nace toward Zion or Zion, who are the people to be turning to in that day? Turning to Messiah. Mm -hmm. So like I said, verse 5 is historical. Verse 6 includes the future. To repent, turn back to God. You must today accept Messiah or you have not repented. You have not turned back to God. Where do these people know the word nace from? Whether they know it or not. What am I holding in my hand? A dreidel. A dreidel. The four letters on the dreidel stand for nace gadol hayasham. A great miracle happened there. So the word nace not only means banner or sign, but also it's a miraculous sign. As it refers to Messiah, who is definitely a miraculous banner. But, and you know, also one of the names that, that the Lord revealed to the children of Israel was Adonai Nisi. Adonai Nisi. Which is, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. The E at the end is my. Yeah. So, like, he basically, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they're all telling the people that Nase is that rallying point. All the people, when you see all this stuff start going down, you do rally exactly so in the tribulation period when God's wrath begins to fall and the armies start to come who do they rally around Messiah Messiah is the rally point Messiah is the safety point he's the point of deliverance and all this is written how long ago 2500 years ago 2600 but many do more every day. So our time has expired. We'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7.